It was seven years ago, early May, my family was having dinner at the Garnier's house, which we've done several times since we've been here. And uh, it was exciting. We had, we had only been in town for about three months, so it was good getting to know some of the other families that they had invited. And uh, I remember we were sitting there eating venison burgers that Jim Kerr had brought. Um, good stuff. And I, I noticed that Kath, every once in a while, would kind of grimace in pain. Uh, she was eight and a half months pregnant, so uh, we thought, maybe something's up here. But, you know, we had been through the pregnancy, labor delivery with Miles before we already had a kid. We knew what was going to happen. I mean, Miles had been right on time, the due date. And this was a couple weeks early. So it had to be those Braxton Hicks false contractions, right? Um, But luckily for us, uh, someone there started timing the contractions, the time in between. And when she realized they were about five minutes apart, she uh, basically kicked us out to go to the hospital. We'll take care of Miles. And um, sure enough, we went to the hospital, got admitted, and Wesley was born that night. Um, we didn't have anything packed because we had been through it before, and uh, we knew what was going to happen. Uh, we didn't even have a name picked out. The nurse had to break the tie there. So uh, it's exciting. I'm sure um, so many of you have memorable uh, delivery stories, and that's probably not the wildest one you'll hear, but it's our most memorable. And I tell it for a point to bring us to the text this morning, to give us a little introduction to one of the uh, word pictures, one of the metaphors that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. See, today's text talks about a day that is coming. A day like no other. One that you won't find in a calendar, but that you will find talked about throughout the scriptures over and over. The metaphors that help us understand this day are that it's going to be sudden, unexpected, like a thief in the night, and that it will be unavoidable, like the labor pains for a pregnant woman. And we're speaking, of course, of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not just some theological concept that seminarians study that nobody else has to worry about. It is the biggest day of all days left to us in human history. The days of creation were huge, of course. The day of Christ's incarnation, of God becoming flesh, was glorious. Christ's death and resurrection were monumental. The inbreaking of the new creation, but we have one day left for us that will end our history. Quite literally, the day to end all days. That phrase, the day of the Lord, is is an Old Testament phrase used throughout we got Joel chapter 2, Zephaniah chapter 1, Obadiah, Zechariah. It's, it's a favorite phrase of the Old Testament prophets. The day of the Lord. And the New Testament writers use a couple other uh, phrases for that. The day of our Lord Jesus in First and Second Corinthians. The day of Christ, Philippians. 
but they're interchangeable. They all refer to that day, that same day when judgment and reward will come and human history will end and God will move on and establish the new heavens and the new earth. You know that uh, the sermon series we've been going through started in Daniel and had some of the apocalyptic visions and, and literature there. And then we went to, now we're in First and, and then Second Thessalonians where a lot of the end times is dealt with. And we'll, we'll end with Revelation starting in the fall, going through the spring. And so we're dealing with what the scriptures say about the end times. And this day, this concept, the day of the Lord, is one that we really need to understand. And today's text gives us a lot of light and instruction about it. So let, wrong way. Let's read through the text and then we'll break it into uh, several pieces. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night, Or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This passage is really uh, better connected to what comes before it in chapter 4 than with the rest of chapter 5. Um, As you know, uh, Paul didn't write his letters with verses and chapters. Those were added. But we really can connect this with what Dr. Dave preached on last week. The the last six verses of chapter 4. And those verses addressed the question, what will happen to those who have already died when Jesus returns? When this day of the Lord comes? And we're answered, they will, they will be brought up with the Lord as well. Today we deal with some different questions, but similarly, the day of the Lord, what will happen to those who are alive? What will that look like? When is that going to happen? And how are we to live in light of the day of the Lord? This whole passage is framed by that last phrase, just as you are doing. I just want to point out that that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, reminding them what he's already taught them. If you remember, uh, Paul had to leave quickly 
and he sent back for a report. So the very beginning of Thessalonians, remember what the report was? You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul is commending them. You are already doing this. You have already started living your life in light of Christ's return. But he's going to remind them anyways, and we can learn so much from this passage. So as we go and explore, let's look at the first three verses together. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So taking those couple verses together, it seems like there's two extremes when we deal with Christ's coming. The one extreme is to try to figure it out, to set up our timetables, to kind of read between the lines of the scriptures, to watch world events and see if the signs are lining up just right. I call this the 88 reasons why Jesus will come back in 1988 approach after a book or an article of that, of that title where we've had these predictions. Jesus is coming back right here. If you're sitting around counting the toes on the statues in Daniel or the horns in the visions of Revelation or trying to figure out the Middle East political situation, you may be missing the point of what Paul is saying here. That the day of the Lord is impossible to know and it will be unexpected and sudden. I don't think Matthew 13, 32 can be any clearer No one knows about that day or hour. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. It's always interested me why there is an obsession with trying to figure out exactly the day of the Lord. I certainly don't understand it when people are stockpiling weapons or preparing for some kind of battle. Um, I guess that's a certain millennial viewpoint that there's going to be a battle that we're going to need to have ak-47s for i don't know um but if you knew when jesus would coming back would that just allow you to live your life however you want live wild live until until maybe stop that a couple months ahead and then clean up your act and you'll be just good to go when he gets back does that glorify god I think that's an extreme approach is to try to figure out what the Bible has kept hidden and will never reveal. And number two, the other extreme is to say, you know, Jesus hasn't come back in 2,000 years. He's probably not coming back in my lifetime. I don't need to worry about this. I can skip these passages. I got nothing to learn from the, the end of time. It's not, let's talk about something that's today. Because again, Paul 
has a lot to teach us when we think about Christ's return and live our lives accordingly. So that first metaphor, the thief in the night, I wonder if if our modern minds can really understand the fear that was struck in the hearts of the people back then, first century A.D. And before that, we have these complicated uh, electronic security systems on our houses. Most of our money is tied up in bank accounts somewhere, on paper, in cyberspace somewhere. Our, our money is, you know, we have valuables at home, but so much of what we're worth and what we own is not at our house. And even if it is, even if we lose a lot by a thief coming in, we've got insurance to cover us, right? We've insured ourselves that we will not be wiped out by theft. And yet, back then, common folks had none of those protections against losing everything. And you can imagine the fear of Having a thief break in and steal everything you own. Maybe you're saving up to pay the dowry for your daughter to get married. Maybe you don't have much anyways. And you need every, every scrap to get by. So you can understand the fear that, that that image might have brought to that original audience. That we maybe don't have. A thief would have been devastating. To those people. And so we need to see that to those who are not ready spiritually for the day of the Lord, they will be completely devastated, totally wiped out. There is no insurance or security system that they have against that day. These, uh, this passage from Paul echoes so much of Jesus' teaching. He rarely quotes Jesus straight out, but you hear Jesus' parables coming through. The parable of the ten virgins. Uh, There's another one. Matthew 24. Jesus is speaking. He says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So there, Jesus sets up the flood as a foreshadowing, as a type, a a typology of the second coming. Does that mean it didn't really happen? No, I believe it, it was a historical event that really happened, the flood But the Bible uses historical events and says, learn from that because something else is coming later on. And we see that all throughout in Jesus' life with so many different ways. And we'll learn about that in Hebrews uh, in the adult Sunday school class. But here Jesus says, just as people were going about their business, eating and drinking and marrying and just business as usual in Noah's day, That's how it's going to be like when he comes back. If people really understood their position 
they would realize that they are moments away from being swept away and destroyed. Which they didn't understand in Noah's day. Oops. And again, Paul says that is going to happen when the end comes, when the day of the Lord. Uh, commentators that I read said that Paul wasn't just pulling that phrase, peace and security, out of nowhere. Uh, that was actually a Latin phrase that the Romans used. Pax et, sec- et securitas. I didn't go to a classical school, so I don't know Latin at all. Did I pronounce that close enough? That was the slogan, peace and security. Rome had conquered all of these different nations and areas and had the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so they said, stop fighting us, live under us, and we will allow you to have peace and security. And I think Paul's playing off that, using that as a little bit of irony and saying, no nation, no government can bring us ultimate peace and security. Uh, You may have seen the bumper sticker, no Jesus, no peace, with N-O, and then reversing that, K-N-O-W, no Jesus, no peace. And I think that's a really simple way to communicate a very compelling truth. That a human being is not secure and destined for peace in the afterlife unless he's been united with Christ and had his sins forgiven. To know Christ is to find ultimate peace and eternal security no matter what the world brings, no matter what our troubles and our trials in the world. So we have, again, these two metaphors. The thief in the night is the unexpected nature. Then the labor pains, you can't really say that's unexpected, but it's inevitable. And that's highlighting the inevitability. When a woman conceives, her body goes into a process that is going to end in labor and a child being born. In the same way, Human history is on a course that is going to end with the day of the Lord and no one can escape it. But as we read on, we have great hope in the next five verses. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation." We are children of the light in at least three ways. The first way is that we are children of the light with our knowledge. And we know, those are very common expressions we use about knowing something or not knowing. You're in the dark or the light went on inside. 
You know, we use those as very common phrases. And I'm not claiming that we are smarter than unbelievers. But we have the knowledge, we have the light of revelation, the light of the scriptures to guide us. You know, there are around 380 references in the Bible to the second coming of Christ. 380. It's hard to get around that. If, and if you've not read the Bible or you deny its truth, you don't have that knowledge that we as people of the book have. Secondly, uh, knowledge is nothing without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. You could study the Bible your whole life, but if the Spirit is not in you, you will not understand it like those whom the Holy Spirit teaches. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But for us, verse 6, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We are children of the light in a spiritual state. It's not just knowledge. It's that our spirits have been taught by the Spirit. And third, we are children of the light in the way we live, in our morality. Because Paul is very clear that those of the night do evil deeds. In other places, he says they live by the flesh. Those belong to the day walk in obedience and live by the Spirit. Do most non-believers sit around and worry about being judged by God? I don't think so. They can dismiss what the Bible teaches, but I think Paul here says they're either asleep or they're drunk. And I think he's meaning that in a, in a greater way. The sleep is the moral, spiritually indifferent attitudes. It's not going to happen. I don't care. Or that they are drunk. And I don't think he's limiting that to just alcohol abuse. It's that they are pursuing anything else but God. Any desires, vices, pleasures that will distract them from thinking of where they're destined to go. Paul goes on and, and he, he, he continues on this idea that we are children of the light and to live accordingly. Your identity as children of the light does not excuse you from living right. Paul says, act like what you are. Become who you are. We, we constantly talk about the fact that the gift of grace is a free gift, not dependent on what you do. But with it comes the call to obedience to a Christian life that says, I am a child of the light and of the day. Paul tells us twice in verse 6 and verse 8, to be sober. 
to keep awake, to be ready. But that idea of being sober, again, I don't think it's limited to abstaining from getting drunk with alcohol. I think the idea is that the Greek word can mean well-balanced, self-controlled, studious, sincere, are all kind of in here. This idea that our lives are lived coram Deo, in the face of God. Listen to how 1 Peter uses sober-minded three times. And I think it's interesting, the first two times he uses them in connection with Christ's coming, second coming. And then the third time he uses it in terms of temptation and and uh, resisting sin. But 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then 4.7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And I see this not just as a command to stay away from something, although it is. Stay away from drunkenness and and that kind of uh, chaotic living. But I, I see it as a call to something. To actively engage our minds, our wills, our lives, the spiritual truths and the word of God applied in every situation. Again, if we knew when Jesus was coming back, we could kind of get our act together right at the end. But Paul says, no, you are in for the long haul of obedience. Plan your lives, live your life. To be found faithful when he returns. Faithful at all times. Let's look at uh, verse 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Paul brings it back to the gospel. Paul brings it back to the Uh, things that Jesus accomplished. If you notice, as we work through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Paul doesn't talk about the cross much at all. He did in the last chapter, but it's not there very often. And we have to conclude that he really taught the Thessalonians well and knows they have a solid foundation because he's moving on to greater things. Not greater things, but deeper things that... uh, beyond the gospel, the simple gospel that Jesus came to die in our place and rise again. So the question is, why are we children of the light? Is it because of how well we act? Is it because of how sober and alert we can act? No, we are children of light because God chose us. Because God destined us, it says. God designed us for salvation, not for wrath. 
And he accomplished that through Jesus' perfect obedience, his death and substitutionary death for us, and his resurrection. We rise with Christ. And it doesn't say it explicitly here either. But the reason we don't experience God's wrath on us is because Jesus took that wrath for us. Every one of us is a sinner. We're going to hear that again during communion. Two types of people, repentant and unrepentant sinners. We are all sinners. The question is whether you will bear the wrath for your own sins or whether Jesus has borne them for you. And the last phrase there that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This goes back to Paul's kind of answering these questions that maybe the Thessalonians had of what if we die before Jesus comes back? Or what if we're alive? And he says, it doesn't matter. If you are in Christ, if you are part of what we call the invisible church, as distinct from the visible church, because anybody can come in, join a church, Right? But the invisible church is those who are truly part of God's family. That's everyone from the beginning of time till the end of time. If you are part of the invisible church, you will be gathered to him on that last day. Paul ends this section almost exactly like he ended chapter 4. Where he said, therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see, again, he says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And so I hope that I, we would realize the benefits and the beauty of living in community. As believers who are not off on their own, but encouraging one another and specifically encouraging each other about the truths of the scriptures. I mean, there's a youth group game where we uh, single out somebody and say, this is, the, this is what I like about you. And you know, every once in a while, it's nice to hear encouragements, and that's great. But Paul, I think, means let us exhort one another to listen to these truths, think deeply about them. No matter what happens in this life, we always have a great reason to rejoice. That we will be saved from destruction and brought into eternal union with our perfect Savior and Lord. And so I want to end with encouragement for four different types of people that might be here this morning. Number one, if you are excited about the fact that one day Jesus will come back because you know that your life is hid in Christ and that he has forgiven you and brought you into his family. If you are excited about that, hallelujah, I rejoice with you. Hasten the day, Lord, when you come back. But never forget that until that time, he has set his believers all over the world, to be his hands and his feet, to literally be the body of Christ as his visible and invisible church. We're to model his holiness. We're to teach and share his truth.
and set our hope on the glory of eternity. Second group, if you are a believer, but you know that there are people in your life, in your family, around you, who don't share your hope, let this truth of the day of the Lord motivate you to tell them to wake them from their sleep, to see God do an amazing work in their life because you were faithful to preach the gospel to them, to move them from darkness into light. Third group, if you're a believer, but you are living as one caught in darkness, I implore you to repent and to seek to glorify God with your life. None of us is perfect. We know that, readily acknowledge that. But what areas of our lives do we cling to? What areas of our lives are obviously going against God's call to be his ambassadors, to be his little Christian, little Christs in the world? I would say embrace the gospel in all its fullness and realize that Jesus is both Savior and Lord over your life. And finally, if, if you either don't believe that there will be any day of the Lord, or you are terrified by what might happen because you are not sure that you'll be safe, you must seek the Lord while He may still be found. I wish I could tell you that when you die or when Jesus comes again, you'll have time. You'll have an opportunity to make a decision at that time. I wish I could. But the scriptures are clear at that point it is too late. So I would ask you to consider the claims of the scriptures that Jesus died and was resurrected to win salvation for sinners like you and like me. Then call on the name of the Lord to forgive your sins and to become Lord of your life. Only then will you have true peace and security in your life. As the music team comes up and we prepare for communion, let me close. Father God, thank you for the truths in this passage. Thank you for a church that sets the scriptures before our people week in and week out and says, what does it say and how can we adopt what the scriptures say and change our lives? God, thank you that while the day of the Lord is a mystery, while Jesus coming again is not a date that you are going to tell us. Lord, you have revealed that it's coming. And you have called us to live accordingly. God, help us to do that. To search our hearts. To see where we do not live soberly. And as children of the light... God, may your truth, may your gospel go out 
So we say, let your kingdom come, your will be done. Use us, Lord, as, as agents of reconciliation. Thank you for the great task you set before us as individuals and as a body. Thank you that we have no dread of judgment for those who are loved by you, who have been called according to your purpose, who are adopted into your family. God, thank you for this deep truth. And now bless our time as we celebrate your supper and the great truth that that contains and physically shows us as well. In your name we pray. Amen.